Welcome to another episode of Consider This. My name is Justin, and I'm one of the staff members here at Sunnybrook Christian Church. And I am in the studio today with the blessed Rachel Madden, one of our college ministers, and St. Reverend James Allen Johnson. And we are going to be taking a deep look at Genesis 3 through 11, tracing some of the themes of sin and judgment, as well as promise uh, throughout the scriptures. Hope you enjoy. Jim and Rachel, I need you to think back to your past. What is one of the earliest memories you have of willful defiance or disobedience? Taking money out of my parents' wallets and purses. <gasps> oh! Jim. Oh, yeah. I was, I mean, I was a bad little boy. <laughs> How old was that? This is all before the third grade. Okay. And I want to say kindergarten. Okay. There was a, like a, it was called Becker's. Becker's Handy Stand was right on the way to school. And it was like 1970, what, 73, 74 maybe. And so I walked to school by myself. And I still remember like taking um, like $2. I think one time I took like $5. But that could get you a lot. Holy cow. Like that's the, that's a and, lot of stuff. And I would just go in and I would buy all this stuff and my parents would just be, Hey, there's some money missing. I don't, and I would lie. I was just, I wouldn't tell them I took it and then I would cry. <laughs> so yeah, no, basically just theft <laughs> and, uh, stealing and bearing false witness. Sure. I guess it sounds kind of like what, David, like yeah. made it, made it worse by lying. And oh then my goodness felt real bad. Yeah, it was. I bet you, Rachel, she's gonna say, oh, "I don't know." One time, I didn't love people as much as they should be loved, or something. <laughs> you did make me feel better about mine. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, one of the first things I remember, my parents had us put like time limits on how much time we could have doing like video games or whatever, and so we were in charge of setting our own timers, though. And I would set a timer for an amount of time but not the right amount of time and then it would go off and I would just pretend that I was deaf and I couldn't hear it (laughs) so my dad would come in after like an hour and a half of me playing and be like did you set the timer and I would say yeah I did set a a timer did it go off I don't know I don't know so deceptive I can't believe you did that I know we we think that's what I was thinking about the theft oh dang it (laughs) I can remember one time this one's weird uh spitting in my garage after being told not to i don't know why that one sticks spitting Spitting in my garage i just remember my dad saying do not spit in the garage but i i remember right after that i just (laughs) that was it the other one was i asked if i could have a friend over and they said no and then i went into my room and i or to my sister's room called my neighbor and they he showed up at the front door my mom and dad answered it before I could get to it, and that did not. That night did not go well oh. for me. That willful defiant moment. So we're here to take a deep dive. Hey, I cried a lot. I didn't cry much. Th- I did. Did you cry? Oh, not even a little. No. Oh man, I just mostly because I didn't get caught. If I got caught, I cried. Was this repentant sorrow or was this worldly grief, Jim? <laughs> okay. <laughs> No, but honestly, because that's a great question, right? You're in 2 Corinthians 7. Um, I did not stop doing that. I think I might have stopped by the third grade. So it, it wasn't like a pattern that I had after that. But, I mean, I remember getting caught. And, and f- I mean, I remember feeling terrible. Like, I think deep shame. 
but man, just five cent gum was just too much for me to say <laughs> no to. So Halloween doesn't come around enough. That's the problem. So if true. we had more Halloweens, I would have been a better kid. I do feel like this would be on that. This would be a great segment to be able to call parents. Like, can we do phone a friend? Yeah. Uh, Steve, let's look into that for the future to call our parents and say, hey, mom and dad, do you remember yeah. the first time we did stuff that was defiant? And they would Actually, just Actually, my tell parents are lot. so old, they wouldn't even remember me. <laughs> like, which one's who's he? he? I don't even think that's our kid. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> Uh, so we're here to talk about Genesis 3 through 11, a deep dive into a pretty significant section of Scripture. Uh, deals a lot with sin, obviously being introduced to the story, and then God's response to sin, uh, which isn't a very popular subject these days. Um, it, yeah, For one reason or the other, it's really difficult for people to talk about judgment and condemnation, those kind of things. So how do we understand uh, this theme of sin and judgment on the biblical terms, but then also how are we supposed to respond or appreciate this issue um, so that we can talk about it in a helpful way to the people we serve? I I think, first of all, um, I want to be careful. Actually, one of the reasons why I wanted Rachel in on this podcast is because um, just the work that she's doing right now with our college students, I just really appreciate just her perspective, right? I mean, Rachel, you're in that sense on the front lines, not that I don't deal with college students, but you have to deal with them at at a higher level than Justin and I do right now. Um, And I'm just assuming if I remember what it was like dealing with college students, say 10, 15 years ago, I think it's just becoming increasingly difficult to deal with texts like this. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of why you're here. Um, to kind of add some of that perspective. I think that what I find most interesting, though, is that the Bible doesn't seem to uh, to care about some of those sensitivities, whatever they might be, in any culture, right? So every culture is somewhat kind of has to deal with the reality of who God is. So a couple of weeks ago when Drew was preaching about Genesis 1 and 2 and you know these these uh, the way that the creation narrative is described is to confront the way that the Egyptians saw it and the way that the Canaanites saw it and the way that the Babylonians saw it, like whether they like it or not, this is, this is the way God ordered things. This is the purpose behind these things, right? And it's, it's designed to confront. And I think that that then stands true for us as well. Um, so I, I think just in, in part of it, I mean, I could just say it's true, but I just, I wonder sometimes if, if, um, if it's not just true, but the way it's been designed by God is to, again, set a pretty high bar or a pretty clear bar that God is the one who has the prerogative to judge those who rebel against him. Mm -hmm. And so you literally have the unfolding from 3 all the way through 11, just failure after failure after failure after failure, and God um, deals with it every time rather, rather starkly. So. Because it's not like every person has a hard time dealing with God's judgment. There's some people that can accept it for what it is, right? But it is interesting to see within cultures which themes or stories are abrasive. You know, for us, the story of the Good Samaritan is like, yeah, aren't we all supposed to help all people all the time? That's what we do. That's where we're people. But judgment, oh, wow, to submit to a, a wife, submit to a husband, that's that's crazy, right? So I'm sure that's just a little bit of personality. It's a little bit of culture. Rachel, what are some things that you've seen as you've dealt with some of these college students on the front line? Yeah, I think that's a very good point about how the culture we're in can give us the lens through how we 
sometimes interpret some of these stories. And so I think that one of the hard things that we deal with with college students, or probably that we all deal with at some level, is that we do want justice. And um, college students, I think specifically, or just younger people in general, do have a desire for things to be set right. Um, and I think we're being exposed to those things more and more through social media or the news or just like the way our world has been globalized. But I think that in as much as we are being exposed to judgment or or wrong things in the world, we also are somewhat insulated from that now. So I think when you talk about the culture that it's in for us, um, so we're insulated from some of those really wrong, evil things that are happening. And maybe if we weren't so insulated, we wouldn't be, it wouldn't be so abrasive to think about judgment. I think we would be, see it more as a hope um, if, if we were more exposed to some of those things. So I think it's, it's a trade-off because I think for college students, we see a longing for justice as some of the wickedness of the world is brought to light in a lot of different scenarios, but we're also insulated in a lot of ways in America um, to some of those realities. And so the judgment can feel so harsh because sometimes those realities are uh, more through a screen than in Mm -hmm. our, in our lives. Jim, talk a little bit about like the cognitive dissonance that has to happen for us to see God being just on his terms and not liking it. And then us wanting justice on our terms and, and liking it, accepting it, and thinking everyone should yep. should pursue justice and be good for justice. And yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's what Rachel described it, the insulated aspect of it, I think, is a really, really big deal. Um, uh, 10, 15-ish years ago, when there was a real push within, uh, within Christianity— for more of a pacifistic approach to things. And, you know, it's, it's always good to be pacifist when, when you're at war. So kind of the most recent conflict, right, after, after uh, 9-11, um, <clears throat> which was, what, over 20 years, just over 20 years ago, um, when America kind of went to war, so to speak. There became this pushback against that. And I'll never forget listening to the scholar Miroslav Volf, who comes from that part of the world with uh, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Kosovo, and he would just say it's it's really easy for people who've never experienced war to just call for peace like you have no idea and he again he was he was just making more of a commentary on things he's a very peaceable man but he was just describing that that judgment when you've seen these things when you were if you were in Rwanda and you saw what was happening you just have a different perspective of what justice is and so if the worst you've ever seen is still just even on a screen, but you've never really dealt with injustice, but you've just dealt what injustice looked like on a snippet on a, on a TV show or something like that, it's just it's fundamentally different. And so I think Rachel is really, really right on this, that you, we become peacemongers, and I mean that kind of in a negative sense of the term, not peacemakers, but peacemongers when we don't understand the difficulties of war. And we can become anti-judgment people when we don't have to really deal with injustice. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the big things that uh, you know really hit me studying through three through 11 is that I think it's, it's always, my dad would always remind me that son, you will always struggle with um, the sins 
that, uh, or you'll always struggle with other people with the sins that you yourself don't struggle with, mm-hmm. right? So if I'm struggling with with stealing, <laughs> right, then and, and Rachel's struggling with stealing, then I'm just like, I get it, girl. Like I do. Like who doesn't want to take two dollars out of your parents' purse? Like I totally get that. And then I find out you did what with your timeout or your not timeout, <laughs> but your time on the Xbox. Like I can't believe you did that because that's not something I struggle with. And so I think that's part and parcel with this, right? Is that we look at some of these things, and if we don't, if we don't resonate with it, if it's not an injustice that we even care about, that's why mm-hmm. a lot of people are talking now about more about, about, about selective outrage mm-hmm. or selective justice. Mm-hmm. That it's not justice; it's selective justice. And then I would say the part that we really miss as Christians is that we are not concerned about God being offended or God's honor or God's righteousness being broken. So in the end, the reason why it's easy for me to just, I don't understand the big deal in Genesis 6. I mean, I'm sure there were some bad people, but that flood seems way overkill. And you just have to realize like, hey, you weren't there. So you're gonna have to be arguing literally from ignorance. Um, But then B, like you, you don't, it wasn't against you, right? And so I think that's part of the problem is that when you're looking at the judgment in the Bible, the judgment in the Bible, going back to what I think David says, no, what I know David says in Psalm 51, to be able to say against you and you only have I sinned, O God. I don't think David's making like some categorical statement. I think he sinned against Bathsheba. I think he sinned against Uriah. So I think those things too. But he's able to kind of focus in that sin and says, but against you, God alone, have I sinned. And I think that's another reason why is that we just don't think it's that big of a deal to sin against God. So we don't feel the, we don't feel the injustice, so then when the judgment comes, it seems like it's really exaggerated. That's good. And I think, I think we have to realign ourselves with a more, and when I say sympathetic, it's not like God needs our sympathy, so I don't mean that. But that we, um, you know, I, I love these songs that describe, like, God, break my heart with what breaks your heart. Mm-hmm. And the Bible actually tells us that if we call something good that God calls evil or vice versa— then there's something fundamentally broken in us. So there has to be a realignment with us. Um, yeah, so. That's really good. No, I, I was just actually, I was going to follow up with a question of, if you're somebody who do who does struggle with the justice of God and his the outpouring of his wrath, his just wrath, what do you do? And I think you just answered it. You, you There has to be a spiritual and we're going to talk about this in a minute, as, as we are transformed into the likeness of Christ, remade into what we were always meant to be, there has to be something going on in our heart that we want our heart to be broken by what breaks God. We want to see things the way God intended us to see them. And, and that will that takes time, right? And it does take the Word, it takes the Spirit, it takes the people around us. Have you ever struggled with this personally, like the judgment and justice of God? Yeah, I think it's... Yeah, there's like a collective way to struggle with it of like, huh. oh, this yeah. this feels like so harsh to like, at, at Babel, to like break all these people up or, yeah. you know, this feels so harsh to like kick Adam and Eve out of the garden or these different things. And that almost seems more like theoretical, like a theoretical struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that it's not important, but then I think there's also like on a more personal basis, I think to struggle with... God's judgment. I have struggled with that at times when I feel like I'm doing pretty good. 
<laughs> and when I can see my sin really clearly, and when I see that in contrast to God's holiness, I don't struggle with it as much huh. because I can see that like God is holy and so he's worthy of my obedience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like you were talking about, to see our offense clearly. Um, but when I when I don't see that as clearly, I think I struggle with that more of mm. like, how could God, like yeah. I'm doing pretty well here. Um, and, and so I think that that can be a good a check for myself of like, do I have an honest uh, perspective <laughs> of myself that helps me um, or that is really informed by how I see God. I, I, I was teaching a class one time. I'll never forget it. I was teaching a class one time, and, and I, I hear me, I, under, I understand it. I mean, I don't struggle with it like others, but I don't go, I don't know where you're coming from. Like, I understand why it's hard for people, right? Mm-hmm. Totally understand why it's hard. So I'm teaching a class, and I don't remember what the text was, but it had something to do with the judgment of God was part of it. And then some rather, I, you know, I would say, I thought spiritually mature people began to describe almost apologizing for these aspects of God. Like almost like I'm really, really sorry, or I wish this wasn't true. And I remember hearing them say it. And I remember thinking to myself, they don't understand what they're saying. Right? So you're a very kind person, Rachel, you're much more kind and gracious than you're more like Steve than you are like Justin and Jim. Um, and, and truly, you have a humility about you that I, I can't imagine you being this way. But I think she has a personality, fair, Justin, mm-hmm. where she's so sweet and she's so kind that I can imagine Rachel saying, maybe not her character, but I can imagine the sweetness of Rachel kind of apologizing for God. And, and, I, when, and it was somebody like you, right, that I mm-hmm. respected. And I'm just thinking, wow, like you think somehow like you're, like you're pulling like a, moral, a higher moral mm-hmm. card than God on this mm-hmm. one? Mm-hmm. Wow. Like you're going to apologize for him? Yeah. Like somehow he did something wrong and you know and that's the yeah. way it really does come across. Yeah. Is that I think it's wrong to go, yeah, God, God I mean, although there's probably more of that in the Bible than we want to be comfortable with. But the smugness that I see in very kind, sweet people mm. who think it's almost virtuous to apologize for God. And what it when it really hit me was I thought to myself, if I were to say, you know, I wish God would just kill people more. I just wish he would. I think that'd be like awesome if he just wasn't gracious and he just killed people. You would say to me, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Wouldn't you? Yeah. And you would, you would call it a character flaw. Mm-hmm. So then if you do the opposite and you judge God's judgment against, what does that say about you? Mm. Yeah. Like that's got to be at some level equally as offensive to God. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, I am so grateful for those times in which I'm teaching and somebody else says something and it's like, I could have almost said that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so as they're saying it, I understood what they were doing, but I thought, wow, the arrogance that you right now are exhibiting by trying to be more loving than God. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um, it was a, it was a, it was kind of a very stark contrast in my mind. That's really good. I think we could go down that rabbit trail for the rest of the day. Uh, but I have some other things we want to talk about. So these stories uh, that we see in 3 through 11, we've got the original fall when Adam and Eve, the curse comes because they chose to disobey God. We've got the flood account, story of Noah, and then we have the Tower of Babel in 11. 
Um, those are kind of the three big main ones with some genealogies and lineages and kind of transitions in between. Cain and um, Abel. Cain and Abel. Did and you four. see that one? No. Oh yeah. So Cain yeah, and Abel. I mean, yeah, but you're yeah. right. You got the you got the big big ones. Yeah. And then Ca- the Cain and Abel narrative in four. Um, how do we think about these in terms of historicity? <laughs> so, you know, here are the questions. Were, were Adam and Eve real people or are they representative of, you know, going back to yeah. the beginning? Yeah. Uh, is Noah's account, is the, is the account we see of the story of Noah, is this a worldwide flood? Or is this a regional flood? Yeah. Is the Tower of Babel like, representative of God sending the people out? Or is this like a real moment in which they're building this city and this tower and he disperses them in a unique way? Yeah. How are we supposed to think about these? Does it matter which way we think about these things? Yeah, I think that, I I think the way that, um, you know, Drew described the beginning of the creation narrative, I think is the right paradigm to use, which is how did these, uh, these these story, and I'm using the word story, and it could be historical story. Um, how did they function to the original audience, right? So I still believe in author's intended meaning and what that is going to mean. Um, and then you have some other deep theological significance kind of attributed to these. So I don't know if I know the exact answer. I can tell you the answer that I'm I'm most comfortable with is that even though if I I I, I will argue I don't know if the Bible is trying to speak. Um, in a more literal sense, the six days of creation, in a more literal sense, non-evolutionary development, in a more literal sense, I, although I don't know if that's what the Bible, I don't think that's what the Bible is trying to teach. Um, I, I, do, I do feel the weight of Jesus drawing some very, and Paul as well, drawing some very clear, deep theology on two narratives. One is Adam and Eve narrative, and the other one is the Noah narrative. So Jesus talks about marriage and describes it with Adam and Eve. And so if we really believe a lot about marriage, then I think there's something there. Um, I would also even say, I I, I know there's probably ways around these things. Um, It still seems to me that death comes through sin, according to Paul. So it seems like, uh, again, without trying to put a date on anything, it still seems that Adam and Eve are not just representatives, but they seem to be real people. And Noah seems to be a real person. So I would say for that reason, um, and I do find it interesting, Jesus ties marriage to Adam and Eve. He ties um, the, the, the second coming to the uh, story of Noah, and he ties his resurrection to the story of Jonah. So I find that to be mm-hmm. <laughs> interesting. Mm-hmm. Now you could say, well, Jesus didn't know that those were fables either. He believed they were historical. Yikes. And I would go, <laughs> okay, now we've got another problem to have. So I, I understand um, the complexities of trying to kind of understand it like a like a history book in the modern sense. But I, I do believe there is a historicity to it that I think, I think matters. Mm-hmm. Rachel, what have been your thoughts? I'm sure this is a question that young believers might have or skeptical call students might have you're in seminary so right, right. you officially started you, you, so you now know the answer us, right? please yeah. Rach. or maybe i should ask like this adam and eve real or not real <laughs> i think uh i think i would say real okay. most people would probably say real the flood his, flood worldwide or regional uh i'm going worldwide um okay yeah i think that like the the way that we approach scripture might be um more 
at stake here with some mm. of these things of like yeah. that like we want to read um you you say this a lot like we don't want to read the text all literally or all figuratively we want to read it naturally mm-hmm. and and so that's the point that drew is making about the creation narratives yep. how did it function to the original audience but i think even when we talk about paul and his doctrine um of sin coming through adam and then being redeemed through jesus um and yeah, disagreeing with Jesus, that when, when we start saying things like, oh, well, well, maybe it's just a representation and, and Paul was wrong, like, that makes me hesitant. Like, I, I don't really <laughs> want to disagree with uh, the Apostle Paul and Jesus when it comes to these things. Um, but I'm glad I, that makes you hesitant, yes, by the way. Yeah, yeah, it makes me very hesitant. <laughs> no, but you know what it is, Rachel? Here's what it is. Like, some people will see what you're saying, and hear me, I, I share it, but some people hear what you're saying is somewhat of a cowardice. Like, mm-hmm. you need to be dealing with the text. Right. But I would tell you, just like Andrew Wilson uh, in his debate with Rob Bell, he he basically called it the humility of orthodoxy, mm-hmm. which is kind of how I see, you know, I, I hopefully I see it in me and I definitely see it in you, yeah. which is, is what you're trying to say is I'm not the first one to think about this. And so yeah. I'm going to line up with people who are smarter than me mm-hmm. and I'm going to agree with them. So that can either be cowardice or it can be humility. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've always thought in terms of like... I, as I've processed this, asked those questions myself, um, I, I think we have people within orthodoxy who believe Adam and Eve are real oh, yeah. and Adam yep. and Eve are figurative. Yeah. I think within our church and maybe even our elder board, we have people who believe the earth is somewhere around 6,000 years old or 6 billion, right? Yep. And I, I think there's probably within our church people who believe the world was flooded and if you believe anything else, you're, you don't believe the Bible, and then you have others who maybe believe it's regional. Yeah. And so some of this, and again, it's not cowardice. It's not taking the easy way out. We're kind of saying the Bible can stand on its own regardless of what you think about it. And theologically, you need to ask the questions or what are the implications of the stance that you're taking. Holding it more humbly is probably a good stance to take. Um, so... What are some uh, some themes that we see coming out of this section of Scripture? We've talked about sin and judgment in general, but what are some of the specific— Jim, one of my favorite teachings that you do is the timeline. Uh, what are some of those timeline moments or, or lineages or, uh, hey, it'd be, it's really helpful to understand this later story if you remember this person and this happening right here? What, what are some of those connections that we might miss if we're just kind of getting the very skimmed version of Genesis 3 through 11? Um, I think one of the most important things that's coming out of this are the, are the different lines. So you're going to have the line of Seth and the line of Cain. Obviously, Aval, or Abel, is going to be breath, so he's going to not exist. But then you have this ongoing development from Cain, which leads to uh, brokenness and more and more and more and more brokenness, and then the line of Seth that leads to Noah. Um, uh, so you, you definitely are going to have that, and there, that's, gonna, that's what the genealogies are doing in the entire book of Genesis. So then coming next, you've got Abram, and then he's going to have two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. But it really, it's Isaac, and he's going to have two sons, and it's going to be Jacob and Esau, but it's really going to be Jacob. And then he's going to have 12 sons, and it's really going to be Judah. And so you, you've got this kind of this working of these lines in terms of how God is going to, um, to bring about, again, the redemption uh, the restoration and redemption of the world that was lost in the garden. So that's the idea of the two trees, right, that stand on either side of our, of our, 
of our stage, mm-hmm. that we're, we're moving from the tree uh, of the knowledge of good and evil to the tree that produces this fruit abundantly every month um, uh, from Revelation 20, mm-hmm. 21 and 22, 22 actually. So I, I think that's, I think those are the kind of the major thing. And then I think within it, it's interesting is that you cannot look at these judgments and not also realize like grace, mm-hmm. you know, eat of this, eat of this fruit. And on that day you will surely die. And they didn't like they, he lived 920 years. Um, and so there's a tremendous amount of grace that is given. Although, although I think it is true. There was something that died, but in the end it was like, and he would die, but the Lord is incredibly gracious. And I, I find it fascinating that Cain, God was kind to him. And that again, when everybody talks about, or when some people describe like the Lord is almost like flying off the handle in, in judgment, I want to say, you know, you look at injustice for thousands of years. <laughs> like, which is it? Like, is God just, is he slow to anger? Mm. Um, or is he like judgmental? Because you don't, you don't wait, right? I mean, we don't want to wait for injustice to persevere. And so which is it? And I think the biblical narrative of these 11 chapters force you to deal with not just the judgment of God, but the incredible kindness of God yeah. um, as well. Uh, you know, I'm just listening to you and processing those stories in my head. Uh, Noah, at the end of it, we get the promise of, I'm never going to do this again. I'm kind of, I'm going to, the line's going to come through you, Noah, and specifically through this son of yours. Uh, it's a beautiful promise that God's, hey, also some things are going to change in which I'm being gracious toward humanity. And even in the Tower of Babel, again, he's, he's sending, he's not destroying the tower and killing yep. them where yep. they stand. Yep. He's sending them out. And what actually happens? His image is being carried out, yep. you know, so yep. which is ultimately, that's a good thing in yep. the end, right? Um, Rachel, what about you? Any themes you see as that would be helpful for us to take away from Genesis 3 through 11? Yeah, I think the those themes you talked about of God's judgment and his redemption are a big part of that, even from the beginning. But I think even of how Genesis would function for the people of God who are figuring out who God is, mm. and that as God makes these judgments, that he is revealing who he really is. Um, and so that, like, when mm. when God says, if you do these things, there will be judgment, and then they do those things, and God judges, he proves himself to be trustworthy. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yep. That God is revealing his righteousness and his holiness in these different moments of he he's... And, and he's showing that he's gracious as he provides a way, a uh, covering for Adam and yep, Eve and yep. a mark for Cain and Noah to survive the flood, that God is showing the people of God who he is in yep. contrast to the other Near Eastern gods. Um, and I think that that's really is like formative for us as we read the Bible of who is God from the beginning that he's the same as he was. Um, but I think that's something I didn't really realize until I was, you kind of look at the stories together um, and see not only is is God responding to people who are sinning, but that he's also being faithful to his own character. Yep. Yep. So that's been encouraging. Think, think through a little bit the lens of Genesis 3. This is the, the fall. We keep saying the fall. That phrase isn't in the scripture. It's just a way we describe that big movement in the story um, where they've, they've essentially fallen from grace, even though we, we see that God doesn't kind of allow that. He continues to reach out. Um, what are these theological, practical implications of sin carrying itself out 
through the story of Scripture? How does how is the image of God stay in us? How is it lost in us? Uh, what are the implications, like the pervasive implications beyond pain and childbirth? Childbirth, working the ground is difficult. What are the implications of choosing to sin against God? Yeah, it seems like there is something that is then broken in our nature that is passed down to us. And again, you might think genetically. I don't think it's a genetic issue. Um, this is a major debate that people have, right? It's goes, it goes back to the whole uh, how are we um, innately in need of a Savior? So is there original sin that is somehow in us? Um, kind of passed down, mm-hmm. right, to us. And and I think the way, the best way that I, I believe that is described in Scripture is that there is something then now broken in our nature, and that's why it is not that I, I have done something bad and therefore I am a sinner. I am broken, and because I am a sinner, I sin. And so I have a, I have a character issue. I have, a, I have something that is broken actually within me. All humanity does. Um, and, and that's why, in the end, the redemptive element is not doing right. Because that doesn't change my nature. <laughs> just me. I, I was doing good things as a kid. The Bible, I mean, the Bible doesn't say you can't do good things. It just says you t- can't do salvific things. You can't do good things that save you. So my, I have a nature problem. And so that's why what the Bible actually describes ultimately God doing in, in, in Jesus Christ and in the sending of the Holy Spirit is through the work of Christ, he makes us now holy and through the giving of the Spirit, he empowers us to be holy, to say no to sin, to say no to ungodliness. So um, the work of Christ, which was, I believe, promised in, in the early parts of Genesis, is to undo the nature that was broken in the garden. That's the whole—you you mentioned the Paul thing, the Adam-Jesus mm-hmm. comparison. That's good. I mean, Hekema talks about how our, our structure stays the same. So even if I'm not in Christ, I'm still bearing something of the image of God. That yep. you, there, you can't lose that, but— yep. And the way I function and the roles that God had intended for me, the way I live, that, that's all the broken stuff. So yeah. how I relate to God, how I relate to creation, how I relate to you, how I treat my, think and treat myself, all of that part is broken. Marred. And marred and distorted. And yeah. what is happening in Jesus is there's a restoring of that, a process that is continuing and ongoing, sanctifying, but then will be completed uh, at his return. And that, that's, that is a key theme for Paul, and that if you don't get a grasp for that in Genesis 1, 2, 3, you're going to miss miss some yep. of those implications. Yep. Um, what are just final thoughts? Anything you want to leave our our listeners with from Genesis 3 through 11? Covered it. Everything's solid, 100%, ready to roll. <laughs> they got it. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that I was thinking about through both Drew's sermon a couple weeks ago and your sermon, Jim, is how the creation narrative in these the first 12 or 11 chapters of Genesis um, function a lot like a mirror. They mirror back huh. to me yep. um, what I often wish was not in me. Um, but when I look at Adam and Eve and I see Eve reaching out to take control, <laughs> to be like God. You see a timer um, in the yeah. back here. <laughs> <laughs> I, see, I see a microwave timer uh, going over my time, trying to yeah. determine for myself. But um, in so many of these stories, people trying to be God, seeking yes. to um, take autonomy and the decision making about what is right and what is wrong and decide for themselves who they are um, instead of 
looking to God and what he's revealed for who he is and who we are. Um, and so I think if you actually spend some time reflecting on that, um, it does drive you to be grateful for the hope that we actually see in judgment, that hmm. um, God actually can deal with the brokenness in me, um, and he, he is dealing with the brokenness that we see in the first 11 chapters. And um, that is encouraging <laughs> to me because uh, if, I, if I truly reflect, I can see that brokenness in me, um, to know that God will deal with hmm. wicked, wickedness and brokenness in me, um, and that's encouraging, even as it is, um, it pushes me to the cross because I realize how much I need. I need that intersection of judgment and grace in, in my own life. So, Well, you're a, ti- a timer manipulator. I am. I am. Like, wow. So good. I just, it's hard to believe I'm even sitting across from you. That and more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I like how she said that because I, I, I do think most of my frustration um, with my own brokenness is... Um, is mirrored back to me in in those in those texts where I just I want to have it my way I want to self-define I want to self-explain I want to justify um, yeah the, the only other thing I would I would add is is that these first 11 chapters really do help set set things up um, you have to deal with creation you have to deal with fall but the rest of the story you know comes uh, I love to point out that when I'm doing the timeline uh, it moves really really quickly and then all of a sudden in Genesis 12 it, it all of a sudden focuses in on Abram mm-hmm. and everything slows down now for the rest of the Bible yeah. right like we've covered far more time than Abraham to today mm-hmm. um, in these first 11 chapters so something big is on the horizon I like to focus on what God's about to to do through a man named Abram I think last thing I'd say is just just run through real quick Genesis 3 through 11 and how Jesus fixes what's broken. In Genesis 3, uh, the image is broken and the snake comes. Jesus is the restorer of the image and he's the snake crusher. Genesis 4, we have murder and strife between people. Jesus is the one who breaks down hostility walls and actually binds us more fully together. In Genesis 6 through 9, God's dealing with with sin and brokenness, and Jesus is the one who is going to completely do away with sin and death forever, so it's no more a thing. Uh, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, and them trying to make their own means to God. Uh, Jesus is the one who comes down to us. And in Acts 2, we see people speaking in all kind of languages and it actually comes back together and unifies us, not separating. And so that is such a beautiful thing to see that when you say, I have to see it through the cross, the cross, Jesus, the the full work of Jesus um, is the answer to all the broken brokenness that we, we see in Genesis 3 through 11. We hope that's the theme that you see throughout uh, this series, uh, that this Bible is one unified message that leads to Jesus thankful for many people that have taught me that. Hope this was helpful for you. If you have any thoughts or questions, we would love to hear from you. If not, see you next time.